0: If it's one thing I would say I really, really enjoyed, and I'd do again tomorrow and every other day, was, was capturing people indicted for war crimes.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've
0: made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on to Job, I
1: did feel a lot of regret. My
0: friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you're going to a quite to often. Do I leave under fire? And that was
1: a heavy responsibility I guess on my shoulders that I didn't want to you scroll up. War itself on. is
0: horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious.
1: Not what you can do for yourself or what can you do for your country. The
0: volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line.
1: Mark Billy Billingham served for nearly two decades in the British Army's Special Air Service, the SAS, serving in countless war zones, winning the Queen's Commendation for Bravery and being awarded the MBE by Her Majesty the Queen. Upon leaving the SAS, he became a bodyguard to Hollywood stars such as Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, Sir Michael Caine, Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe. He is now a DS and advisor on the hit TV shows SAS Who Dares Wins in the UK and SAS Australia. Mark, thanks for coming on Life on the Line.
0: Thank you for the invite. It's an absolute pleasure to be here.
1: Mark, let's go back. You had a rather colourful upbringing, shall we say.
0: Yeah. I um, I was born um, 65 in the West Midlands into a, a poor family. I was a middle child of um, older brother, older sister, younger brother, younger sister. And from a very, very early age of where I lived, you know, there was a lot of troubles. There was a lot of little gangs and I got in trouble Really, from the age of about nine onwards, and yeah, and then it went on from there. Basically,
1: some of that uh, first trouble then saw you getting into juvie court as young as eleven. You leave school at thirteen, and I understand you um, had a stabbing incident when you were young as well.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I, I like I said, I went rogue. I, I thought the way ahead was to be a name in terms of known for being a fighter, or you know, a, a sort of person not to sort of reckon with. And I kind of followed that sort of trend, which was obviously wrong. And as you've alluded to there, yeah, I did, I left school very early. I didn't leave school, I got thrown out of school, but I never really went back. And then, yeah, and then I ended up in a, a, a number of fights, and in one particular I did, I got stabbed, stabbed in the back, basically. And uh, I think that was could it possibly really be the main turning point in my life where I realised I've really got to do something super different to get away from this, otherwise I'm not going to make it.
1: That's a few years there of sort of going rogue, as you put it. I mean, what did, say, your parents think about the direction you were taking? Were they concerned about you
0: or they had enough else on their plate? No, my parents were brilliant parents. The thing is, they were both very busy. Like I said, we came from a poor family. We were literally back-to-back doing 12-hour shifts for most of the week and the weekends. And I didn't realise that later on, you know, I kind of held things against my father for not being there when I was doing boxing, when I was doing this. And then I realised later on why that was and it was as i'm just alluded to there that they were both very very busy and the reason i, I was away going rogue and sort of getting away or with it or doing it was because i was manipulating my parents you know I was smart enough to know when i could get away with things knowing dad wouldn't be there or Mum wouldn't be there or whatever it was you know so it wasn't they didn't care or they just couldn't couldn't, couldn't control me you know, when I was kind of playing, playing one off against the other all the time, and and you know yourself, I mean, anybody who's a parent, well, their kids can never be wrong. It's always somebody else's fault, you know. And I, I knew that I was playing that, but it was me. I was terrible. I was a bad kid.
1: But it sounds like you were having, maybe not being stabbed in the back, but it sounds like you were having fun with life as well. But I suppose learning that kind of street smart skills that would serve you later in the army
0: yeah absolutely i mean i I saw everything outdoors and around me all the troubles is a playground and i I, to be honest it it was my education i was learning things i was learning not good things a lot of the time but some good things as well you know how to survive and how to be tough and how to sort of not be wanting everything and just getting on with stuff and it did it it gave me a great sort of foundation for what was to come later on in life i was never shy of putting in you know the hours work or, or whatever it may be or getting stuck in or being afraid or being cold or being wet or being hungry i was used to it i grew up to that and you know a lot of the army sort of life um is around deprivation of food sleep you know and being cold being, being wet being uncomfortable so to me it was i'd already done i'd already done the groundwork so yeah my growing up actually helped me with my start my military career to be honest
1: you mentioned that the stabbing was a turning point i want to come back to that but another uh very formative incident that happened around the same time when you were 15 is you almost died by um, falling into caustic acid.
0: Yeah. That sort of period where I was trying to sort my life out. I, I wasn't going back to school. I was actually working in a factory and um, it was totally illegal. Of course I was getting paid cash in hand. I was actually earning more mo- money than my mother. I was taking the money home for the family line, you know? So and uh, one particular night I was working on a night shift and something went wrong. For anybody that doesn't know what caustic soda is, basically, I was working in an electroplating factory where you take raw metal and you strip it down using acids, uh, sulfuric acid and caustic soda, and then you turn it all nice and shiny using chrome or zinc or whatever you're gonna use. So that's what it was. And I was working a crane one night and there was only two of us on the night shift and I had a bit of an accident. All the work fell into the caustic soda and I climbed up onto the vat, which is six foot tall, to clear it and slipped. And at the time, what I remember was there was only me in the factory. The other guy had gone to the toilet or gone somewhere. But for whatever reason, I slipped and I fell into this acid. And because of the pain, it only got as far as my knees. And that's how to this day I don't know. I backflipped out of it, sort of back with the pain. I should have landed on the floor, and I landed into somebody's arms. It was a guy I was working with. He'd he'd come back. He'd obviously seen what had happened. ran me to the tap and as he got me to the tap turned the water on ripped my wellies off and all this water sort of went inside my skin and all the layers of skin just fell off my feet <clears throat> and i was in absolute agony and then i got took to hospital and taken care of where at the hospital you know i had to lie and say i was i broke into the factory blah 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 because you know i'd got people to sack and that's what happened The police came and it, for whatever reason again i don't know why it was never really investigated after that as long as i they knew i was okay I was left alone, but that, you know, again, at that stage, I already had the turning point of the knife and I decided I was going to go in the military and that stopped me going into the military at the time I wanted to go in because of the injuries. If the injuries weren't
1: so severe and in different circumstances, that might've set you down the path of gymnasts. That backflip sounds uh, very impressive.
0: <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, man, I've never done one as good since. <laughs>
1: So what first drew your interest to the military? You mentioned that stabbing sort of as a turning point made you look for other directions. The acid slowed it down. But what what first planted the seed there for you? Is there military history in the family? Or I guess actually for the Aussie listener, um, I'm half British as well, there's the very strong culture of service in the UK. I think we have, Aussies love their Anzacs, but it's quite a difference of sense of service and you're more likely to know someone who's served in the UK. So just my own context provided there, what drew you to that lifestyle?
0: Um, it wasn't so much. My grandfather was in the military and so was my uncles. Um, and we didn't have a massive sort of uh, military background, to be honest. Although my one uncle was in Burma and he got um, taken prisoner of war. and I never got, fortunate. I never got to talk to him about that. But that wasn't the influence to, for me to join the military. What was, was I joined the cadet at a young age. Uh, the cadet in the area where my brother took me to and, there was a very influential influential man there who sort of put me on the ro- road to sort of ro- keep me on the right road for a short period of time as well. But what I noticed was being in the cadets that everything made sense to me. Everything I was learning made sense. You know, I was learning how to save someone's life doing first aid. I was learning how to do navigation and I could relate to that. I saw where that fitted into my life and I didn't see where, you know, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, learning maths, learning technical drawing was going to fit into my life in school so i i, I another i grad, graduated towards or gravitated towards what i thought could be a good career for me the military and so i had that seed sold quite early and then as i got older you know and i realized i've got to make one hell of a change now after being in trouble with the law being stabbed all the rest of it that went with this I thought, i've got to, i've got to get out of this i've got to one i've got to get out of this lifestyle too i've got to get out of this area because I've already sown the seed of having a name for fighting and getting in trouble, and all that brought was more trouble. And, I, you know, I had to leave. So the Army was my saviour. Yep,
1: cadets teaches you more practical skills than dissecting Chaucer or Shakespeare. What age are you when you finally walk into the recruiting office to volunteer?
0: Well, I'd actually gone over there at, at, around this time before I had the accident, and <clears throat> there was, they basically said to me, right, you can, you can join as a junior, junior leader at 16 because my criminal record... On, on record, finished then. It was five years after being 11, you know, just turning 16. And that was the plan. But then obviously I had, I had the accident. So I actually joined. I couldn't go in after the accident. I had to keep going back to the uh, career centre every couple of weeks to check my injuries and all this sort of stuff and check my weight, actually, believe it or not. So I eventually joined when I was 17, just uh, just 17 and three months or something like four months. So I was still a young kid you know, but felt I, was, I wasn't, I felt I was an adult. So. Check your
1: weight because what, you were under or over?
0: Under. I'd been boxing quite a lot at a uh, lightweight. And what basically what I, I was told when I went to the careers for the first time, I I, I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. And I, I thought I wanted to go to the parachute regiment. And they said to me, look, you're a little bit light. You need to put some weight on. So I started eating as much, as much as I can. My mom got me some stuff called weight gain. And I used to take that all the time, try and put weight on, but I wasn't really putting anything on. So it turned out it was, it was false information anyway. So why they even said that, I don't know. But every time I went over, I'd get weighed, check my burns, check my injuries, and you know, and then eventually got a date to go do the uh, three day selection process, and then eventually into the army.
1: What did your um, parents think of this after this rather rogue, wayward youth? You're going into a real sort of streamlined, disciplined institution. You're leaving the family home, and I'm, are you the only one of your siblings to go into the military?
0: Yeah, I was. Um, It it was a mix. You know, I I thought my dad would be doing backflips himself to get rid of me and at least start thinking he's got a chance of putting himself in the right place here. But but just before I left, we had a real father-son talk, and it was quite the opposite. But then I realised later on, he did it for a reason. He knew what I was like. I was. His nickname for me was Mad Jack. I was called Mad Jack because I was mad. I was, you know, totally different to the other four kids that were siblings. And I was always in trouble, always going there. And he, to him, he thought the best rocket he could put my ass was to say I'd be a failure, say I wouldn't make it. Because he knew then I'd wanted to prove him wrong. And, and, and it was, that was true. So that's what happened. And I'd also, I wanted to prove myself. I could do something for me and be somebody. I, I knew then, you know, from that stage of 15 to where I was 17, I'd met a lot of older people. And I always gravitate towards older people all through my life. So I listened to people. And I think I was street smart. I wasn't academically smart, but I was smart enough to realize this is life simple. It's one circle of, you know, you start by pissing the bed and shit in the bed and being fed and you end up back that way if you live long enough. So, And and all the lessons in between it, you know, having money, not having money, being in a relationship, being out of a relationship, high lows, eye, high points, low points. So I kind of knew. And, um, you know, so I, I, I thought, right, the military has got to be my thing and that rocket up the ass is what my dad gave me it was perfect. I thought, here we go. I'm not going back to this. So
1: you're walking in there with a rocket up your ass. You've got your street smarts. You've got your street fighting experience, your boxing experience. How do you find then the basic training or whatever the correct terminology is for over there?
0: Backing out. Out of my league. I thought I was somebody, you know, I'd been a, a big fish in a little pond, which I hadn't realized. Then all of a sudden I'll turn up in all the shots. Home of the parachute regiment, home of Garrison Town. And I'm stood with 70 other people who've joined that day. And I looked down and I was probably the smallest, the skinniest. And I was looking at, you know, big blokes, tattoos, mustaches. And I thought, fuck, what have I done? But they kind of give me, again, it gave me that little bit. I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove myself. I'm not going to give up. But more better than that was the people that were teaching me, my instructors, um, the staff, they'd all literally, it was 1983. So, less than a year, six months before, they'd all been in war. They'd all been to the Falklands War, you know, Britain at the uh, the Falklands War, and they'd been involved in Antoine. So, they're experienced people. They knew what they were talking about, you know, they'd seen death, they'd been amongst it, they'd done what every soldier joins to do. So, the people talking to me, I knew weren't bullshitters. These were real men. These are fucking tough, not people coward like myself at the time would fight people and do all this sort of shit. These people were tough guys and, and i was like wolf i am really out of my depth here and again i think that was a second rocket i had at my house where i thought oh i'm, I'm not going to be beaten by this i have got to i've got to be i want to be like one of them i want to make some of myself i really from the word go respected him and i thought that's what i want ed I'll Die and be somebody so that, that was my initial thoughts when i got there although i knew it was going to be hard it was going to be tough and it was
1: I'm sure it was, but you've also, you've got this great balance of you're driven, you want to forge something new for yourself, even stuff like the discipline, the ironing, the uniforms, all that stuff, that is, they are throwing challenges at you, trying to make you fail, and you can, like, all these little things, no, I'm going to overcome that, overcome that, overcome that, but then that's also skills acquisition.
0: Yeah, I I think it was just a bit of an advantage to most people, to be honest, because I'd been into the cadets, and the cadets do set me in good stead. I knew how to wear the uniform. I knew a little bit about weapons. I knew a bit about the very, very, very basics of stuff. So I was kind of one step ahead of most people. So I had that, and I had, you know, the the biggest sort of thing in my army at that time was, I cannot go back to the lifestyle I've had. I have to have this. This is my my one and only chance, and I've got to make this happen. So, you know, I was super, super driven, and I'd already had some of the tools I needed to get there, which was, like I say, the lifestyle of being brought up the cadets, and and they're wanting it
1: so when do you make it into the parachute regiment what's the journey from your first day of training to actually then becoming para qualified
0: it's a six six months process you know it's broken down into a number of phases you get taught basic skills and advanced skills you get pushed through a selection process which is called p company which is a four or five day event of three events a day, physical way, you have to reach a certain standard, a certain, you know, it's marks out of 10, you have to reach a minimum of eight to, on every event to get through it. And very, very few people get through it first time. Um, and then once you've done that, then you go off for a month of parachuting, being thrown out of an air, you know, an airplane, which I've never even been on an airplane before. First time I've been on an airplane, I got through at the fucking door. I was like, what's going on here? So you got all that that training. And then at the end, you know, you, you just sort of, in, in all that process, while well, you're learning other skills, more medical skills, more communication skills and doing education, all the stuff I missed out on at school. So when most of the kids, the kid, I say kids, most of the young soldiers were back in the block getting their, their bed ready and all their equipment ready. I was still doing two hours of education the evening and stuff because I was so far behind as everybody else. And, I, you know, I had to do it. So it was quite hard for me uh, in that term. But I mean... It was a long old six-month process, and we started with 70, 7-0, seven and by the time we got to the end, seven of us originals were there, you know, and I was the youngest, the skinniest, and I was there with what was left. So it was an amazing, absolutely amazing journey, you know, and I met some great people in that journey Still, To this day, you know, 40 years on or whatever it is, I don't know, I'm not know 30 odd years on. Um, they're still friends. I could talk to any of them and pick up like it was yesterday even the ones that didn't get all the way through training as weird as that seems you know every now and again they'll reach out to me on social media and you could pick up a little bit of a laugh and a joke of what happened back in the day when we were all in the same boat so yeah it was it was an amazing journey it was a tough journey and I don't think there was a day went by where you know with some of the physical stuff we were doing I was thinking geez I could just pretend to run into a tree or just pretend I got injured, just I could not do it. But you just, you know, that's the devil and the angel playing with your mind and you just go, I want this, I'm going to do this. And, and I did it and I, I did pretty well, actually. I finished as the champion recruit, you know, the number one recruit from that original 70.
1: That's a pretty steep attrition rate. I mean, that could give you that sense of pride and accomplishment, making it through that cut on its own, but then also to be the number one recruit coming from, where you came from that must've invigorated you with this sense of purpose drive. Yes. You fulfilled the potential of those rockets up your ass. And now you are here in this career. Yes, this is mine. Let's go see what I can make of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of it, I, I kind of felt so proud and so uh, cause I, I, I didn't know if I could do it. I really wanted to do it. and I did it. And I did it with style. And, but then I, I think, I, again, I was, I was pretty smart to be honest in many ways, because I knew, all right, I've done this, I'm now going to join a battalion. The battalions of like 600 men uh, of blokes. Again, they've all been to war, they've all seen it, they've all done it. So I knew I weren't starting in a better position than anybody else just getting there. I knew I was going right to the bottom of the pile again. But I was, I was kind of excited by it, you know, so it, it was a great feeling to know. And my battalion, when I joined it, was already abroad. They were, they were in Belize, in Central America, and I'd never been out of Warsaw, really, uh, where I, I grew up. So, like I said, the first time I'd actually seen a plane, I was being shown around and then getting thrown out the door. The next time I see another country, I'm stepping off into, wow, into a jungle. I was like, wow, what the hell? So it was all a massive, massive learning curve for me, but a fantastic time.
1: And you say others there have just been to war. So this would be 1983, year after the Falklands?
0: Yeah. Right after the Falklands, yeah. So I passed out in the early early uh, February, March 84. So the back end of um, 83 was all my training and, and into 84. So it was less than a year and a half after the Falklands War. So all the people that had you know, been there and been and done it. So I was right. a nobody, complete nobody. They were all sort of tight as two coats of paint they've all been together and now here comes this gobby little mouthy sprog from the West Midlands who's, you know, not proven himself yet. So it was a difficult time. It was quite, it it was a tough old time.
1: Well, you keep growing to be the big fish in the smaller pond, and then you find yourself the small fish in the bigger pond again. It's good to keep challenging you and making you grow. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, uh, to be honest, before I went up to the battalion, joined the battalion, I remember because for six months now, all through training, as anybody who's been through training knows, you get screamed, shouted at, and pushed from pillar to post. And there's reasons for that. At the time, you don't you don't see any reason other than you feel like you've been picked on or bullied, but it's not. It's conditioning you for what's coming. And then at the end of that training, you know, just before I joined my battalion, I, I met one of the guys who had done exactly what i was talked about, I'd been to war and all the rest of it, he sat me down and chatted to me. He says, you're joining the battalion. And he gave me a real good, not just me, the other three guys that went with me to the battalion and, and gave us a real talk of what life would be like and what to look out for. And it was probably the best advice I'd ever really, especially if you're stepping into this new world. like You know.
1: You mentioned being thrown out of a plane. A lot of Aussies would have first met you on the first episode of SAS Australia where you guys were pushing some of our celebrities out of a helicopter into a lake. And that was at a, I mean, not, I've not done that myself, but, you know, a short height compared to what you're jumping out of. What's it like when you are jumping out of a plane that's flying that high above the ground? What's the, what's the sensation like?
0: It, it's ridiculous, to be honest. The first time you do it, you know, parachuting, you've got this thing on your back and it, it weighs a ton anyway. You've got a reserve on the front. That weighs another frigging load of weight. And you kind of focus on standing up properly and getting to the door. And then you look out the door and you think, hang on a minute this is a perfectly service, serviceable, you know, aircraft. Why the fuck am I throwing myself out of it? And you ask yourself that question. And a lot of people say, every jump I've done is a night jump because I just close my eyes and go for it. I don't, I actually love the fear. And, and, and anybody who tells you they're not nervous or have a little bit of fear are liars, everybody does. Even people who have done thousands because there's always something that possibly can go wrong, you know, and the chances are pretty slim but you don't realise that when you stood there with the door open and the jets screaming past and, you know, you're going to go into this jet stream and spat out the other end of it. But then it's exhilarating, you know, you, you, you just go. You just think to yourself, this could go wrong. I could probably die. But for whatever reason, you're going to go anyway. I'm like, fuck it, I'm going. I'm following that guy in front of me or the guy behind me wants me to go, I'm going. And you just go. You just believe in yourself. You believe in what you're doing and boom, out you go. And it is... You know, the canopy opens underneath you and you're looking down and it's just brilliant. It's just amazing. You just see, watching this, everything from such a, a, a wonderful view and then before you know it, before you can really think too much about it, you're coming in for a landing and it's just like, it's almost like you, you get that ground rush. Everything's rushing out in the in the last three or four seconds. You're like, feet needs to get my elbows in, da-da-da, trying to get, carry out all these drills, you know? And uh, bang. So, I mean... You just mentioned there, you know, I went from being thrown out of a plane and now I'm throwing some of your celebs out there. It's fucking payback time now. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's great.
1: Too right. You've done it, so they should do it too. It's interesting, though, because when the average person thinks of the risk soldiers face, they're going to often think of something like a gunfight or the danger of an IED. But when we're talking about, you know, real top-tier regiments like the paras or special forces like the SAS, Brits or Aussies, um, the training is really top tier. It's realistic because it has to be, and it's also dangerous. So that risk of injury or death in training is very real too, and often I feel actually left out of the conversation.
0: It, it's it's I'll tell you what, mate, I'm glad you alluded to this because it's something we've been talking about recently, is we lose more people getting ready for war than we probably do in war, you know, and because we train so hard, we push the limits. And what you do is frightening. It's dangerous. And, you know, even when you're when you you're going in on operations, of course the, the sort of the crux of the operation is dangerous. You know, you're possibly in against, you're in for a gunfight probably. You're in for, against suicide bombers. So you know that's coming and you kind of muscle memory, know roughly what you're going to do or what you need to be doing. But then you've got to get there, whether it's coming from the sky. You know, you're falling from the sky, pitch black at night with all your equipment. That is, there's, the things that people never really talk about and that they're the danger points getting down onto the ground and then getting from A to B whether it's through a ravine over another mountain or whatever it is that, that's that's enough that scares the life out of you before you even get to the gunfight you know the gunfight's a bit that people sort of talk about more but getting there and then getting out it's just as bad when the helicopters are coming in or wherever it is in the mid you know your three or four helicopters landing in the pitch dark and there's dust everywhere they can hardly see each other there's bodies all over the place it's totally seems like chaos. Then they're lifting off and taking off. And we have many times in you know, helicopters clip each other or the helicopter gets shot out of the sky and all this sort of stuff, all these dangers that we're never really talking about. But it is, it's literally from stepping out the door onwards to stepping back in the door. Is that you are, your life's in, you know, in the hands of the gods. You just, you hope for the best and you just get on with it.
1: You face those man-made dangers, but you can also face natural dangers. How did you find your first experiences in the jungle training?
0: Um, I've never seen anything but Tarzan before, so I was expecting elephants and all that, and I hadn't, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And then the first time, you know, you land in the jungle, it's petrifying. It's frigging claustrophobic. You don't realise, you can't see more than two, if somebody walks in front of you 10 metres, you know, you've lost them. If you haven't had visual of them in that 10 minutes, you, you'll lose them because it's so you know claustrophobic and closes around you. So that the visual is difficult. Then the eat's 90, 90% eat. It's like it's like being in a sauna with a house on your back, sweating like a lunatic, and somebody smacking in the face every two seconds with sticks because you're just like getting beaten by all the all the foliage. And then on top of that, you've got spiders, you got snake, snakes, you've got whatever else is out there, it's all out there and, and we'll take a chunk of you. It is, it's, it's horrendous, it's, it's it's petrifying. And then what no one really ever talks about is the noise. When you land in the jungle, it's, it's deafening. You know, because every little creature out there is telling all the rest of the creatures something's in their area. And you just see these beetles squeaking and you never really, it's never talked about. And you're like, geez, what the hell is that? but then after a period of time let's just say you know 3 or 4 days you kind of settle down and settle into it and a little bit longer after that it actually becomes therapeutic you get used to it and you love it it's just it's like listening to car alarms going off in the jungle because of some of these strange noises but yeah there's a lot of natural dangers there then you know you've got you've got the ravines that you can slip into you've got the rivers which flash um flash flood you know and you can literally be sort of it up, what they call bashes, hammer up that night, and within sort of an hour with the rainfall, the tropical rainfall, you, you could be being swept off down the river. It, it, you know, and it's there's all these sort of problems. Then, one of the other things that no one ever talks about is deadfall. Um, you know, some of these trees in the jungle are like 200 feet high plus 200 years old, and over the years, they just fill up with water and water. And, they, and once they die, they're full of water. So it's like a frigging tower block falling down when they fall. When that comes down in the in the jungle, and generally it's at night, so you've no idea where it's coming from, you know, and we have. We've had people caught up in that and killed under it. And it happens. And when that goes off, it's like a bomb going off in the jungle. So there's all these natural disasters that we never even think about. All we ever think about is the enemy and a gun. Somebody's gonna try and shoot us or, you know, blow us up. You've you've got all these natural things to deal with. But it's actually quite exciting at the same time, you know, when you learn all these drills and skills to Avoid the dangers. And, and generally, with na- nature, a spider won't bite you or a snake won't bite you unless you're pissing around with it. 90% of people that get bitten because they're messing around with shit, leave it alone, you know, and they'll, and they'll leave you alone. There is a few percent that will be territorial and take a bite every end of you in the night, but very few really. So, but there are, back to your question, is yeah, there's a lot of dangers there.
1: We'll get to it later, but you end up in Mountain Troop in the SAS, but right now you're with the Parachute Regiments and you serve in a huge range of environments worldwide do you have like a favorite kind of environment or area you've operated in
0: yeah I, I love the jungle it was my first first time away from home after that description you love the jungle I mean that's what I'm saying after a period of time I settled into it and what people don't a lot of people hate about the jungle is because it's dirty you're sweating all the time you know you've got leeches around your neck and in between your legs and everywhere and you've got ticks and you've got all this shit i just loved it i just got used to it i love the this you know the, the the coolness of the night the, the hot in the day the sweaty being dirty soldiering's good your navigation's got to be spot on your concentration i, I just I thrived on it so my favorite environment is the jungle and i've spent i would say probably 65 70 percent of my army career in the jungle
1: well, if you embrace the dirt and the filth, then you just become one with it and you don't have to worry about being filthy because everything
0: is. And that's what it is. You, you become one with your environment. You tune, as they say, you see through the trees and you tune into your environment. And a lot of people don't like it. I, I absolutely love it.
1: You spent around nine years with the parachute regiment. Is there a particular highlight operationally that you are able to share?
0: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a few, you know, it was some of them were exercises, but I guess operationally, At the time, Northern Ireland was uh, a hotbed, you know, there was a lot going on with the IRA and Inlet and all the rest of the little breakaway groups. So that was a real, for us, it was a real test as being a soldier to what soldiering was about, staying alive and fighting an enemy, although it's not a a conventional enemy, you know, terrorists are cowards in my eyes, they hide behind civilians and they hide in civilians and they don't come out and face you. But it was a great sort of... um, I say training ground, it was a great sort of ground to, to learn proper soldier and be on and, and do what you've been trained to do. So, going to Northern Ireland for the first time was, yeah, because people were getting killed. Not that I want anybody to get killed or injured, but this was real now. This was fucking full on. You know, we had, I don't know, five or six people killed on that tour who were good friends of mine. When that happens and you're like, wow! Well, how am I going to react? No one knows ever going to react to being shot at or being potentially blown up or being involved in a firefight until you've done it. And that, that I guess, for every soldier wants to know, how am I going to react in war? And you'd be surprised how people do act, you know. You see people around you talk a lot and have got a lot to say and seem to know a lot. But as soon as, you know, the lead's flying around, they sort of run up their own ass and the quiet guy steps up. And I wanted to know how I would be. So it was, that was my... Very memorable time for me, being out there because it was it was a hotbed and you know personally I felt I cut well and I did what I was expected to do. So I was out there and there was a lot going on and so I'd had a taste of battle and conflict and then we had Cyprus on top of that while I was with the parachute regiment. And for everybody, go Cyprus, whatever happens in Cyprus, Cyprus is a holiday resort and it is. But when we got there, fucking sods law. All hell broke loose. The PLO decided to attack. We would you know, rocket launches. They killed people here. Killed... We had a lot going on. It was Cyprus there was another operational tour, very, very similar to Northern Ireland at the time. Not as bad, but it was operational. So it was a good ex- grounding experience. And then I had the full career with it. So I, with the Parachute Regiment, I'd done the training. You know, I'd been to a number of theatres uh, theaters around the world, desert, jungle, a European. I'd done a number of operations. I was ready then to... I had a good foundation then to move to the next level.
1: We'll move on to that next level very shortly, I guess, just looking whether it's those first experiences of the lead flying around you with the IRA or the other uh, operational deployments you've undertaken. Yes, you feel good in how you responded and stepped up to the plate when that action kicked off. But then I guess it's also then processing that once the adrenaline subsides and sort of, you know, confront, you know, you're losing friends, you're confronting the meaning of mortality whilst you have, you know, family back home and it's not just about yourself and your own life anymore I guess how did you find that balance of home life versus professional life
0: I tell you what mate I mean everybody deals with this differently and that probably has a different way of explaining it but for me and looking back on it now I feel kind of guilty but I was pretty good at compartmentalizing my life and locking it locking it off locking off my family And, and at that stage I had you know did I, have to, I had one little daughter, a wife, and my wife was pregnant with a second daughter. So we had, a, you know, a close little family back there that I did miss. Of course, I missed and I loved to death, but I just shut them out completely and just got on with my operational tour and what I was doing, and became very, very selfish. Really, you know, I didn't think about them as much. I'd think about them of an evening when I had time to do, you know, when you had ten minutes to yourself, and then that was it. Shut it off again. Off I go again. And I knew there was two reasons for them. One, I had to concentrate on what I was doing. I was able to compartmentalize my life and and thereafter, I've, I've done it ever since, you know. And I think it's now the latter part of my life where I feel, you know, you can't get that time back now. But I have tried to sort of spend as much time as possible with, with the family and the loved ones. So it was difficult, the answer to that question. It was, it was difficult. Yet in the
1: professional compartment of your life, you have always sought to challenge yourself and then you find a way to provide yourself the ultimate challenge in the form of the special air service. And our own SASR is modeled from the British version. And that goes right back to steeped in history, World War Two. It is a huge prideful place of the, the ultimate um, level of professionalism. And that's not in a chest thumping kind of way. That's in a you're surrounded by the best and you want to live up to that own standard. It's a wonderful goal to chase. I guess what made you finally decide, yes, I want to give the SAS a go and your journey to selection and what British selection is like? With well, this podcast, listeners have heard many stories of Aussie selection, but uh, British SAS selection, the Brecken Beacons, and all that's kind of very legendary.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, you know, the SAS ain't for everybody. I, I think anybody that's in the infantry side of the military in the UK, especially. Should have a go at it, should go for it, because it's, it's, it's a pin- pinnacle of your career. It's like, I kind of explain this. imagine you turn professional as a footballer, and you normally start off in a second division club or a third division club, and you want to be in the Premier League. You don't only want to be in the Premier League, you want to be in the top club of the Premier League. And I'm not a massive football fan right now, but you know, everybody knows Manchester United or Chelsea. You want to be there with that club, and that's what the SAS is in terms of the military. Although I say that, I always say going from the parachute regiment to the SAS was a sideward step. It wasn't a forward step, because there's just as good soldiers in the parachute regiment as the as the SAS. The difference is the SAS work at such a different level. You work at strategic level. And you know, to be able to work at a level, you have to you have to be something different. And I can say that now because I know because I've been I've actually been part of the training and I've done all the operational stuff I've done. So I know what I'm talking about. And and without a shadow of a doubt, and I'll stand on any set stage and I'll say, I will say the British SAS are the, by far the best in the world. And I know a lot of us is here, ah, bullshit, bullshit. But don't get me wrong. Our brothers in arms, SAS, Australia, New Zealand, they're brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I'm saying it because I've been in the British SAS and I've worked with the Aussies, I've worked with the Kiwis, I've worked with most special forces around the world. And, you know, most of the special forces are based off us as well. Um, and I think the reason we are... As good as we are is because we're constantly on a war footing, constantly in conflict. We're constantly, you know, keeping that sort of skill set evolving and moving because of what we do. But the reason I chose to go there was one: I wanted to see if I could do it again. Another challenge in my life, like I did with the parachute regiment as a young kid. I wanted to know: Am I good enough? Am I one of those people? And two, I'd got quite a few friends of mine who'd gone before me and they never really told me what they did, but I knew they were doing some great stuff. I thought, I've got to have a piece of this. I've got to, this is what I want to do. And that was my reason for eventually going. So I did two years back at the um, training school, the depot, the parachute regiment, where I started my career. You know, so I'd now give, give all, the, all the skills and information I'd learned over this uh, seven, eight years with the parachute regiment, back to the young kids coming through. The, I thought it was time to move now. And then that was my stepping stone after that on to go for the SAS. And that's what I did.
1: I think we could probably talk for a couple of hours about uh, British SAS selection, but is there a particular highlight, anecdotal, standout memory for you to sort of sum up uh, the intensity of that experience, which I can only... Imagine comparing it to Aussie selection stories and how you're positioning British SAS as the best in the world I'm sure their selection matches yeah. up to that promise
0: um, I mean, I'd expect every Aussie to say the same Anybody who's in their regiment, you know, that's pride, isn't it? I'm saying it because that's what I believe But um, yeah, if so, talk about selection, I ended up as a directing staff on selection as well So I know I went through all that same phase again so when I went, I went there. There was two. I think. Don't quote me on the numbers because I'm not 100% sure. were about 283 of us. I think I turned on on day one to start this. By day two, 80 of those had gone. 80 had gone on day two. So that gives you an idea of you know what the hell is this all about. And it was it was short, sharp, fast. It was horrendous. It was horrendous. It was like it was a crazy train that started at a thousand miles an hour. You got on it, and if you can stay on it, you'll do all right. Most people couldn't stay on it. You know, so off we went. It's broken down into phases. You've got the, what we call the hills phase, the mountains, which is, as you've alluded to, Brecken Beacons, the Black Mountains. And, you know, you you're literally, every single day, the the distance increases, the weight increases, the intensity increases, the people fall by the wayside, the numbers get lower. You're still there if you're good enough, blah, blah, blah. You've got to navigate, you've got to carry their weight. And this is the thing that nobody really realizes. The hardest thing on selection is self-motivation, wanting to do it and do it. Because on SAS selection, you don't get shouted at. Not like you see on the TV. It's nothing like that. You know, it's down to you. Uh, It's all down, you know, they ask you. They'll say, right, tomorrow morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, be on parade with a a Bergen that weighs 80 pounds with your rival, da-da-da-da-da, that's it. And if you feel and normally in the normal army, you know, you saw majors there or your corporals there, go go and get your shit together, let's go, let's let's get moving. None of that. There's no encouragement, there's no encouragement So for the first time in your military career, it's down to you now. And some people can't get motivated. And when when after day 10, 12, 15, 20 of everyday house on your back going over the mountains, over the mountains, your legs are aching, your legs are your knees are swollen, your back's killing you, you've got blisters everywhere. It's easy just to lie and go. Oh, fuck that, I'm not doing it. Well, you can. And they don't come in and shout They go, okay, no worries. Pack your kit, There'll be the doctor will see you later, bye, and you're gone. And, and for most people, that's what happens to them. They can't motivate themselves, and which is weird. Because I, I, I remember people, when I was going on selection, they'd spent three months already. Their military unit had given three months off to train. I never got that in the parachute, I didn't get a day off. And they'd be down in, in the beacons day after day, going over the deals that they knew about, some of the routes they knew. And then they've gone on day two. It was bonkers because they'd psyched themselves out or they just couldn't do it. And then, um, so that's the, that's the first phase. And then this is an, another thing that I will say, SAS selection is not deals, which everybody thinks it's about going over the mountain. It's not. We don't even look at people to get to the jungle. The jungle is SAS selection. And for me, I had a real full sense of security because I'd already by then been to the jungle three times, four times maybe with a parachute regiment, and doing all this stuff. So I thought I knew the jungle. I thought I'm I'm happy with the jungle. I'm now acquainted to it. I love it. My God, did I go with the wrong impression? Because it was different with the SES. You were watched 24 hours a day. You you know, the skill sets in there were simple. There was nothing difficult about it. Soldiering was simple. There was nothing special about that. What it was, it's now you're a smaller number, and everybody's watched virtually 24 hours a day. This is where the jungle is where they really get to know you, because they want to know who you are now. And it's about seeing what you're like, you know, getting up in the morning. Are you a grumpy kid? Are you a, a worker? Are you someone who gets amongst the team? Are you self-motivated? Are you this? They really peel you back. So that's what they're there for, to look into your characteristics. They're not bothered about what you've done in the past or how big you look and how great you look and what you've done and how, what a great soldier supposedly you are. No, nah, the soldier is basic. It's about you now. Who are you? And that's what, that was the difficult bit keeping that going because people do, you know, you, you'll see a director stabbing in, in front of you and the guy, then all oh, these weapons in his shoulder now and he's helping everybody else. You can't keep that going for a month. you real by week two, the real you comes out. And if you're one of these who can't be asked, just throws your weapon on the floor, throws your burger on the floor, plunks his ass down, can't be bothered to motivate. You're already on your way out, but they'll let you keep going all the way to the end just suffer anyway. And then goodbye, you know, so that, that was a real, that was hard. And flying, I remember flying out the jungle and I think I'd lost about a stone and a half, not that I had a fucking stone and a half to lose anyway. And I'm flying out and I was on the skid of an old scout helicopter flying out, just two of us strapped on. And the wind hit me and I was so used to being stinking a piss because of the ammonia in your skin. You've got one set of 12 to working all the time once to keep dry, sleeping. And obviously I've got my working stuff and as I'm driving out, the ammonia and the acid in it I could literally it was like I'd been stood too close to so fire, I could just put crumple it up and it just snapped off. It just dropped off me. And I remember sitting in the helicopter, scraggy beard, like like a you know, like a war victim, thinking, Fuck that, nah, I'm never doing that again. I actually didn't care by then whether I had passed or failed. I thought I'm just glad to get the end of it for me. I mean, of course I wanted to pass, but I was like, there's no way I'm going for that ever again. And all the way through it, my DS, you got a couple of DS. Hardly said a word to me other than, this is your next grid. Away you go. This is what I want you to do. That was it. It was weird. It was like, so everything I did, I thought I did wrong, was amplified and bouncing around my head thinking, oh my God, they've seen that. And a lot of people tie themselves into knots about it instead of going, you know what? We're allowed to drop a bollock. Get on with it. Please
1: correct me if I'm wrong, but then this actually kind of strikes me as a great character test as well because they want to test that you are self-motivated that you will be pulling your own weight not letting the team down because one of the most again to my civilian eye that one of the most realistic things i saw in sas australia was right at the end where you were all the uds were all discussing but would i want him in my team would i want him in my patrol and because the patrol is such a small unit every person is such an important feature of that you have to trust them all intimately and so what you're describing sounds like a great yet simple effective way to test that
0: yeah absolutely I mean, you've just hit the nail on the head. That's what it all comes down to. At the end of the day, is can I work with that bloke? Could I be in a hall for ten days, ten weeks with that bloke guy? Would he probably? Would he be the one when maybe I'm having a bad day? He'll pick up the pick the reins and go. And that's what you're looking for. So there's no set template, and you, you'll get different types of people. You get the quiet guy, you get the aggressive guy, and there's a place for either either one of them as long as you've got all the rest of the characteristics: the honesty, the integrity, the drive, the self-motivation. If you've got that. It doesn't matter who you are. And the beauty of it is, let's just say, for example, you're on it and I'm, I'm your DS, I'm watching you. And you've got most of what you're supposed to have. And I'm like, I'm thinking, I'd never probably go for a beer with him. He's not a blogger i would want to go for a beer with But it's not about that. And I might have a few little drugs words or something against you, but the next DS will go, well, actually, I took him on the range yesterday and he's fantastic. It's the fairest system you'll ever see. So it all comes back down to forget who, you know, Certain things, but what has he, has he got the characteristics? Has he got, could he be part of that team? And that's what it really does come down to. And yeah, that's exactly what it is. They go, right, yeah, I could have that guy next to me. I know he'd, be, he'd, he'd, he'd go that little bit further He'll do what he needs to be doing. And it doesn't matter your size, your shape, or your background. Like, yep. Yeah.
1: Just quickly, you, you pass selection, you get through, you have that great moment of pride. But then you end up in mountain troop, and mountain troops named after there's different methods of insertion. Why did you end up there and not in an air based um, insertion method, as opposed to climbing over ravines and hills and terrain? Considering your background, mate, <laughs>
0: you know, unbelievable, right? So you get to the end of the selection, seven of us are left again out of two hundred eighty three, whatever it is, and they go right. Okay, you get a choice. Where do you want to go? So I said, right, I want to go to D squadron and I want to go to hair troop. Natural to me, parachute, blah blah blah. That's my, That's where I'm. Go- that's what I want. So, and a few people wanted whatever they want, boat troop, doo, 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 whatever your preference was. So then they come in and go, okay, yeah, he says, it looks like you'll get what you want. It's all right. Billingham, you're going to B squadron, not D. I went, right, okay, you're going a mountain troop. And I thought, fuck. I've never climbed anything but stairs in my life. Why am I going to mountain troop? So now all of a sudden, you know, I'm in this the squadron I didn't really want initially, but I'm so glad it was because it is the best squadron. And then I'm in mountain troop and I'm like, you know, you know, then and then in about three weeks, I'm hanging off a four thousand foot in the Alps, fucking rock face, by two fingers, and I'm learning all these new skills. So it was, it was completely new to me, alien to me. But I'll tell you why I loved it, and I call it man's troop. Of all the four troops there is, without a doubt, there'll be blogs out there. they go air troop and boat troop. Ah, bullshit. Mountain troop is man's troop. You're up there, you know. You've you're up above the snow line, below the snow line. It's it's dangerous. It's scary, but it's brilliant. And a lot of the world is covered in mountains, so most of the time you'll be taking the lead on operations. That's my explanation, anyway.
1: <laughs> you spend almost two decades with the SAS, which is an amazing amount of time of service. And, yes, there are some action-packed stories we could dive into from your time there, like the time you were a sniper bait, which you get your commendation for, the hostage rescue work you do, That one of which gets you your... MBE, you do some other quite interesting things like indicting uh, criminals for war crimes. You're the ground commander during the London 2005 terror attacks. You've had a huge service history, and I'm happy to dive into any of those points there that you want to talk about more on. But I guess what motivates you to just keep putting the uniform on day after day? What keeps you motivated to keep giving what is a really, you described selection as a crazy train. I can only imagine serving in the regiment is a crazy train. What keeps you going back there year after year for so long?
0: I'll tell you, mate, honestly, and without trying to be clear, it it, making a difference. You realise what we do makes a fucking difference, a massive difference, and a lot of the differences we've done and changed in the world. We changed world policy. We changed direction for countries. We changed some, and and I'll tell you what, the key thing to all of that, we save a lot of lives. We make the world a better place, and that's what it is. I hate... People, when they describe me, yeah, but you're a trained killer. And you, we're not a fucking trained killer. We're trained to deal with situations that are horrendous that may lead to somebody being killed or killing someone. Yeah, we are, but no different to anybody else. Our, our main job is to carry out policy and change for the, for the good. You know, it's not all war and conflict. Some of it's been natural disaster stuff that I've been involved in. And it's amazing what we do. And, you know, if I want to talk about one of the, I've done some amazing stuff. I was very fortunate for, for, been in the regime. I think I, the only war I really missed was 2000. And, uh, sorry, so it was the Falklands, 1982. Thereafter, you know, all through Europe, Africa, Middle East, I was there. Whether that's fortunate or unfortunate, it depends how you want to look at it. But I, so I had it all. You know, I had hostage release, terrorist kid, fighting in trenches. I've done it all. I've been fortunate enough to do it all, and I did because of the, the way the world was and is. So of all the stuff that I've done, you know, I've got to be careful about what I do talk about, but you talk about prison. If it's one thing I would say I really, really enjoyed, and I'd do again tomorrow and every other day, was was capturing people indicted for war crimes. In my eyes, fucking scumbags. People who, you know, run concentration camps, killing civilians. People who, in every war, you'll get an element of lunatics who have the opportunity to run wild because they, they think they can. And Bosnia was a massive example of that, and that was a massive eye-opener to me of how... Evil people can be. So at the end of the war, our tasks were to go and get these fuckers. And it was, tell you what, it was a pleasure capturing these scumbags and watching them cower and shit their pants and piss us, literally piss themselves off when they get caught. The ones that did get caught if they did, weren't killed in a firefight. The gutless people that were. So, that of all the jobs that, I oh, know I've done some brilliant jobs and people go, well, that's nothing compared to you did this, you did that. But to me, ridding the world of that lot was fantastic. So, and it goes back to, you know, the regiment and what he does, and like SASR do. And we, we changed policy, mate, and it's for the right reason, you know, helping people all around the globe and making the place a place to stay. And even on the own fronts, there's a lot you'll never even know about and you don't need to know about. You probably never got a bed. Shitting yourself. But I mean, you know, what, what the regiment does is just it's phenomenal. It's new world arms. I mean, wow, you're like, wolf. And you're making part of that decision of changing it you are the eyes and ears to not just your government to the world you know and that, that sounds really what you're talking about I'm telling you some of the things I've done and said and had to say and do you like I look back at it now and I laugh to myself I mean you know I left school I had no education I'm telling now how to which way UK is going to go and how that's going to affect our economy and our deployment and all the rest of it so it's such a great pleasure to be in that position. And you soon wise up and realize this is real. This shit is real.
1: That's a really meaningful answer. And the passion for the work you've done and the difference you've made, that in itself is very inspiring. So thank you for your service in that regard alone. There's dozens more. Well, uh, take that back. Official Secrets Act and all that. There's not many stories you can share. Those that are more on the public record. We could spend another hour or two talking about but besides um your precious time we w- want people to actually turn up to some live shows you're doing which we'll plug a bit further into the episode you step out of the regiment after many years of service and i want to quickly sort of cover your career in between to what you're doing today you have spent decades avoiding being seen what you do is secret you can't talk about it, all that stuff then you end up bodyguarding celebrities i mentioned at the very start of the episode and you've you know going with our absolute a-listers to now being in front of the camera you've been in front of the camera for films as well as the tv shows i've mentioned like just what's a quick overview of how all that came about and how you feel now being in the spotlight no camo it's just everyone knows your name and
0: face it's it's absolutely you know 180 of my life it was ridiculous because Step. You're right. I spent all my military career trying to get into the SES, and then the rest of my life denying it, like we do. Then all of a sudden, I had to leave. I'd done. Tw- I always say 27 years. I actually did about 30 odd years because I was full-time jumping through windows, kicking, doing all that sort of stuff was 27 years. Then I did uh, another. I didn't actually leave officially till 2015. I stayed. It stayed on as a reserve. Anyway, I'll jump forward from that. So I, when it came to leaving, I needed a job. And at the time, the, the, there was some stuff going on, and I thought, "Do not want to do that? Do I not want to do that?" But I'd already moonlighted and did a little bit, bit of bodyguard job work anyway. And I thought, "Yeah, this is all right. All the skill sets I've learned in the regiment, I can adapt to what this new sort type of work I could do." And then the job came up to take over as. Um, you know, head security, or not head security initially, but part of the security for a couple of A lists. And I thought, well, yeah, okay, I can do that. And the job was there, the pay was good, the work was what I liked. But the, the downside to it was oh, that, exactly, the, the opposite to what I've had. Now all of a sudden, I'm most likely going to be in the spotlight. I'm going to be, but I have to make a choice. What do I do? Or do I just. Wait for another job as a civilian contractor I was in back in Iraq, where yeah, the money was great, but you didn't have the support. It was fucking more dangerous, and it was. I was tired of, you know, shitting in a hole in the ground and living off a fucking generator. I want a normal life for a bit, so I decided I was going to do the security, celebrity security, and that's what I did. And it was, it was, it was awkward. It was bizarre because all of a sudden, you know, you you can't hide. You've got to be next to these people, and these people have been. Photograph left right, in Chelsea 24 hours a day. So I was, I just went from, and it was awkward. It felt really uncomfortable and I didn't know how, I struggled with it a wee bit, to be honest. And the thing was, I never spoke about who I was, what I was, of course the press make massive speculation. The new bodyguard, he's MI5, he's SAS, he's whatever he is, you know, and I just never really talked about it and all the rest in the sort of delve into and try and get information. Some of it was accurate, some of it was absolute bullshit. And yeah, so this new world out opened up and I was like, wow. But then after a period of time, and i talk about this at my shows and I'll go into a bit more depth about it. I realized a lot of people out there doing all these, I'll call them top jobs really, because they are top jobs. You know, you're getting paid a lot of money and you, you've got a lot of responsibility really. A lot of people I was eating were all SAS and special forces from, and I'm thinking, oh, he looks the same age as me. And I know everybody in the SAS, the SAS is tiny. You know, maximum there's about 130 of us. at Any time I know, I know from back in the days of David David Stiller, because it's such a small community and we all know each other. And I thought I don't recognise any of these people, and I realised quickly all the, a lot of fucking idiots out there have been telling people they're SCS and living off the back of it. And I thought so. I had to admit who I was. I was yeah, I am SAS, and I felt all could say it, and it was really weird. But I thought I had to say because all of a sudden people are getting all these jobs, and I weren't getting work and this that, and the other and didn't have the credibility I thought I should have had for what I was doing. And all these lunatics who have done nothing and were living on the back of it. So I did. ask, yeah, you know, when I met people after that, I didn't make a big song and dance. But it was, yes, I am yes. With that comes obviously a consequence that, well, firstly, you know, in the public eye, people want to know who you are. People sort of put two and two together. Now I've admitted to it because I felt I had to. I have to take the risk on the security side of it, and I do. I, you know, I've counted I'm sure on which I'm. You know, going, I've got countermeasures and all all that sort of stuff to deal with that. I had to take that risk, but I had to work and I had to do what I had to do. You know, so you know, I weighed everything up, and it was the right thing for me to do at the time. And I'd already stepped into the limelight, so I couldn't really just just disappear doing what I was doing, and that was my life. That was my job. So awkward, very awkward, and you know, but then. As time's gone by, like again, I don't know how much time we've got, but I mean, I went from being this side of the camera, protecting people, to ending up that side of the camera. But I'll tell you right now, I embrace it now. I love it. It gives me a platform, and I love doing what I do. And I ain't saying this because I I, want to say I, I I fucking love helping people. And I've got a charity out in Haiti, which I've had for 10 years, nothing to do with this celebrity shit that I've got now. You know, I've already had that for 10 years, and now I, I, I can do so much good for so many people and it's, it's fucking brilliant and i love it and i'll, con- do, I'll do it, continue to do it as much as i can
1: i do want to ask you more about the live shows but tell me more about the charity work i'd love to hear more about your philanthropic efforts
0: yeah i'm massive on charity mate i'll do anything for charity uh, to be honest to a degree and because i realized my background and what i came through and when i took people come to a show you see why i did do it because people gave me a chance who shouldn't have give me a chance because i'm horrible little shit. so i realized and, and now when I talk about in my book and where my life started, I call it the man with the hat. The man with the hat was an old man who gave me a chance who should never have given me a chance. I'm now that man now. I'm him. So I, I love do the charity work, you know. I've, I'm an ambassador to a, a veteran charity, Phoenix um, Heroes, which is brilliant, getting people off the Veterans off the street. Fucking veterans should never be on the street anyway. Veterans off the street, back into home, but into work. You know, it's a, it's... It's sustainable. It's not just a bit of work here and there. It's all sustainable. It's a turnkey solution to getting them back on the feet properly. So I work with them. My main charity is uh, Rebuild Globally, which is working with kids out in Haiti, giving kids education. No kid on this fucking planet should be without education. How the hell this is happening, I don't even know. We've got so many billionaires, yet we can't even get fucking kids into school. So I'm going off at a tangent as I do. Yeah, that, that's what I do. I, I put kids. I, me and the wife, we've got a, we've got a charity and a, a for-profit uh, company. So what happens is I put take these kids, and these kids are street kids. Take them off the street. I put them through school, pay for all their school and the clothing and all this sort of stuff. And and they've got no, you know, they've got nothing else. But if they stay in the school program, it's a proper school program. If they stay with it, they get their education. They get the tick in the box. Then they go into a, a Roughly about a year's job training that includes driving, learning how to sew, learning how to use machinery, how to do, 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 do. and then if they stick with that, then they get a job. My wife runs the job side of it, and so it's turnkey, it's ending poverty, giving them dignity because that's what it's all about. You, like me, we've we all we're all charitable to a degree, but we've all done the putting money in a bucket that never really follow up where it goes. But if you follow some of that up, the, especially with the big companies that everybody thinks they are doing great, 90% of that money gets squandered somewhere else. It doesn't go to where it wants to go. So I, I'm deep into my, I watch every penny where it goes when I'm in, with my charity. And anybody who supports my charity can do exactly the same. It's 100% transparent. What you put into that charity, goes to that charity, helps that kid, helps that family or whatever it does, you know, in the right way. None of it goes towards the admin staff. None of it goes towards that. There are certain things we have to do. That's why we have the for profit, the profits from the the things that we make and do, which is, you know, uh, fashion, flip-flops to to ladies' um, uh, earrings and bags and all this stuff, which are quality, part of that pays for our staff, you know. So that's how that all works out. So, yeah, I'm, I'm deep into it because everybody needs an hand up at some stage, you know, all of us. So I'm I'm very passionate about charity.
1: No, that's deeply commendable, mate. Especially looking back to your background and the circumstances you grow up, I can see you now. Yes, embracing the fact you're the man in the hat and want to help people in those dire need circumstances. Especially say veterans on the street, you'd have a real uh, calling there. And but you also have this calling you alluded to of just you know wanting to help people in I don't know more ordinary circumstances like these um, live shows you're doing. Which i want to hear all the details about let's plug it that's not just about oh yeah i'm getting on stage i'm having my time in the spotlight no, no, that is you, know, you want to meet and talk to people and help them and give them some guidance and some inspiration
0: yeah absolutely and again funny you should ask how this came about was for charity i got asked will you do this event for charity for for kids who'd lost their parents back in herefordshire where i live and I said, yeah of course i will and what do you want me to do and he says oh will you just come and meet a bunch of people and just talk for a bit and i thought oh, yeah no worries." And then on the morning of that day, my wife says to me, what are you going to talk about? I went, I don't know. I'll just see what they want to ask me. She says, no, you've got to have a structure. So we put these very basic structures together and I was expecting 30 people to turn up. So I'll turn up to this place in Hereford and actually Foxy, one of the lads on the show, for the people that don't know, I'll give him a shout. i said, hey, mate, do you want to come down and meet some people? He goes, yeah, I'll come down. And Ollie came down as well. And he goes, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I don't know really. I'm just going to go on stage and I'll call you guys up late and we'll do some Q&A. And so I went out then anyway and I did this bit of a talk. My missus went, stop, have some logic to this and put some pictures up and a, a thing. And I did it and I was expecting 30 people. I walked out there, there's 300 freaking people. I was like, shit, my pants!" I went, what the hell? And I just talked about what I talk about, but, you know, in basic terms. And, and it went really, really well. And I raised a lot of money for these kids. And I thought, I fucking love this. This is what I want to do. So then a friend, somebody in the audience who's now a friend and now a business partner says, hey, mate, if I put the show together for you, would you do it more? And I didn't want to do it. I said, I don't mind doing the odd one or two for charity, but not really. But anyway, long story short, I ended up doing it. And it grew on me and I started to enjoy it. Because a massive pleasure. sense it, I, I do my talk and it always finishes off with a charity work and I get a lot of people to support the charity and I normally have... They stand there with all the items that these young kids that have gone through education and into have made. And it's brilliant. People buy that, and that all goes back to eighty. So I've loved it, and it's grown and grown and grown. And the other thing of it is people say to me, what's the talk about? And I won't go into it too deep here. And I'm thinking, I don't really know. What is it, motivation? Is it inspiration? And I, I, I have to say, you tell me what it's about at the end. But I'll tell you something from it is every single person from the nine-year-old kid that sometime come to the 80, 90-year-old person walk away inspired in one way or another and go, wow. And, and that's, I love that. You know, I always look in the audience. I'm always in, it was like an old couple and I'm kind of look at their eye and see if, are they smiling when I'm supposed to try to make them laugh? And generally they're not. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck, this ain't going too well. And every time I've come off stage, you know, and I've had it, and it's, it's amazing. You know, some old guy of 80, 90 he goes, that's the most inspiring talk I've ever had. And I'm like, what? Uh, uh, why? And then he'll tell me, he goes, I could relate to this, da-da-da-da-da. And then the young kids and the, the parents go, wow, that was great. I, I related to all what you went through at school and you're growing up. And I didn't realise about this and I didn't realise about that. So I'm not there. I'm not there. Look at me, I'm an SES guy and I've done this. I don't do any of that. I don't do none of these quotes, bullshit and take a bite of the earth, make it yours. What the fuck does that mean? I hate all that shit and statistics and negative to positive and da, da, da. Well, hang on, give an example of what you're talking about. Because it sounds good, but what does it mean? I tell you a story and I tell it warts and all. It's my trials. I ain't proud of most of it, but I tell it because I realized, it took me to that point to realize, stop that shit. That's all wrong. And if I can pass that on to a kid now and he can cut that distance in half of being bad and doing the wrong thing, then I've done a good thing in my eyes. So that's what it's about to be honest.
1: Well, mate, you are very grounded and you're very passionate. I can see that being inspiring for a lot of people. I've just loved talking with you today. For example, when and where are these talks happening?
0: So Friday night, I'm just up the road here at the Recital Hall. Um, anybody? Uh, do, do you know it?
1: Yeah, in so yeah, we're talking about Friday night in Sydney. Yep.
0: Sydney, yeah, in Sydney, and then on the ninth, which is, I think, is on a Sunday night. It's Mother's Day, I think. Uh, Yes, it is. Yeah, Uh, I'm in Brisbane at Trivoli. And then on the 10th, I'm in Melbourne.
1: Right. So, Brizzy people, take your mum out to see Billy for Mother's Day. Great Mother's Day present, especially if you haven't got something yet. What more could you want? Sydney Friday night and Monday in Melbourne. All the details will be on your social media, and that is Billingham22b on Instagram
0: yeah and you'll get a special uh, you'll get a few extras as well because i think the one in sydney the lads might come along to it as well foxy all in, and maybe uh, there'll also be a bunch of uh, celebs who've been you know on the show or got been you know in contact with us so there'll be some special guests in fact every one of the venues there will be so you get a little bit more than you, you bargain for
1: Well, if you're going and you've listened to my chat with Billy today, be sure to ask him, so why were you screaming at them on TV when he was just saying that he wasn't screamed at when he did SAS
0: selection? I'll answer that right now for you because being quiet on TV is not good TV.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mate, it's been a pleasure chatting today. Thank you so much for your time.
0: And likewise. Thanks a lot.
1: I'm Alex Lloyd and you've been listening to Life on the Line. You can find us at Life on the Line podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at L-O-T-L pod on Twitter, at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn, and our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dad Van Workoven. Thank you for listening, and lest we forget.